It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. The filing period for Sitka's municipal city elections opened on Monday. Current members Stephen Eisenbeis and Richard Wien have reached the end of their three-year terms. Mayor Gary Paxton's two-year term is also up. This leaves three openings at the Sitka assembly table. Two seats on the Sitka school board are also open. Dion Brady-Howard and Elias Erickson both stepped down in June, ending their three-year terms early. Their seats were temporarily filled by Andrew Haynes and Blossom Twitchell. The filing window closes Friday, August 7th. Sitka's city election is Tuesday, October 6th. Those interested in running for public office may contact City Clerk Sarah Peterson at 747-1811 for more information. Schools in Sitka will open in August with a mixture of in-person and online classes if the state approves the district's Smart Start plan. A task force of parents, educators, and administrators have been working almost since the end of school last spring to develop strategies for Sitka's five schools that keep as many students in the buildings as safely possible. Two major questions remain. How many students will come back and how many teachers? KCAW's Robert Woolsey attended the most recent Smart Start task force meeting in Sitka and filed this report. If there's any upside to having most of the summer to plan for school this fall, it's that classes and teaching will be more tailored to the unusual circumstances of a pandemic. Last spring, you'll remember, students in Alaska got a spring break that never ended, and there was a massive effort to transition all in-person teaching to online teaching with mixed results. The elementary levels especially were a struggle. Baranoff parent and task force member Kristen Hames said her team wanted to see young children back in class. Kindergartners and first graders benefit most when they have hands-on experiences and also when they have personal interactions with teachers and peers. So really from day one, our goal was to figure out how to make that happen and how to do it safely. Hames said they wanted to create a pod environment at Baranoff. No more than 12 to 14 students in class led by team teachers for four hours a day, five days a week. Everyone, including students, faculty, and staff, will get a daily temperature screening and be required to wear masks, which will be provided by the school. Classrooms will be situated with desks no closer than six feet, lunch will be provided in class, and there will be no social interaction with other students outside of class. Additionally, students will be doing much of their in-class work on iPads using the Microsoft Teams platform in the event there is an outbreak of coronavirus in the classroom and all the students have to work from home again. In all buildings, the approach, if not the precise details, are the same, how to teach as many students as possible at minimum risk. Kate Mullen, a 7th grade math teacher at Blatchley, said the pod strategy, which at Blatchley they're calling cohorts, was designed to prevent a mass exodus from school in the event students or staff tested positive for the coronavirus. If, if somebody in the cohort um, got the virus, then the whole school doesn't necessarily have to shut down, or at least that could provide buffer. In the older grade levels, like Blatchley and above, the task force recognizes that the physical hazard presented by the virus may outweigh the benefits of in-person academic instruction and some parents may choose to have their kids learn from home exclusively. So every afternoon from 1 to 3.30 at Blatchley, students can attend their four academic classes online, along with some electives. 
The high school will be working along these lines as well, except under an A-B cohort system, where half the students are in school on alternate days. Task Force member Tim Pike said it was inevitable that some students won't attend in person, which means that teachers will also be holding their classes twice daily, once in person and once online. When a student cannot, cannot be there for reasons, such as they have COVID or their family has to be unfortunate, we will provide that five days of online instruction to go along with that. How that looks, we're not real sure yet. All of these plans assume medium risk from the COVID-19 virus. There are alternatives for low and high risk under each plan, everything from school that looks and feels like a normal school year to an exclusive online environment. And although the strategies focus on safe approaches to in-person learning, there is no consensus yet among teachers to what safe means. Interim Superintendent John Holst said that there was simply no way to eliminate risk entirely. We want everybody to be safe. And one of our biggest struggles is going to be convincing all of our teachers that it's okay to be in the classroom. I don't know if reluctance is the word I would use. I would probably say there's a, a high population of teachers that feel some anxiety about their safety in coming back into the classroom. Mike Vieira is the president of the Sitka Education Association, the union representing teachers. Reached by KCAW by phone, Vieira complimented Holst and District Education Director Chris Voron on their collaborative approach to the Smart Start plan. And their message so far to this point has been anyone who feels uh, like they're going to be in a position of compromised safety in returning to the classroom will be able to work with the district to have some type of alternative arrangement. The Sitka School Board has already delayed the opening of school by a week to August 27th to give teachers more time to prepare for Smart Start. The district's final plans must be submitted to the State Department of Education and Early Development by the end of July. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. You can find links to the Sitka School District's Smart Start planning documents on our website, kcaw.org. Some residents in Yakutat will have their water shut off this evening. The city and borough of Yakutat said in a press release that they'll be shutting off the water from 8 to 10 p.m. tonight along East Ocean Cape Road in order to connect the water line to a new clinic building. Those with questions may call Yakutat Public Works at 784-3329. An ordinance that prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ individuals in Ketchikan city limits was passed last week. As KRBD's Eric Stone reports, the local law was approved by the city council over the objections of religious advocates. Ketchikan's new protections for LGBTQ individuals unanimously approved by the city council are wide-ranging. Though the U.S. Supreme Court ruled earlier this summer that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression in employment, the ruling's impact in other settings isn't settled. Ketchikan's ordinance also bans discrimination against LGBTQ individuals in housing and in public businesses. The proposal followed a high-profile demonstration outside Heavenly Creations, that's a Ketchikan flower shop, after the owner reportedly refused to take an order for a same-sex wedding. Heavenly Creations owner Heather Dalen spoke publicly about the matter for the first time at the council's meeting. I have personally made and delivered bouquets to the members of LBGTQ community on numerous occasions. We have not and do not discriminate. 
She argued that the ordinance's provisions requiring private businesses to serve customers regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity violate her own right to exercise her religious beliefs. When it comes to the holy sacrament of marriage, God's word is clear. Marriage is one of the seven sacraments where the Lord Jesus Christ is present. For you to pass an unnecessary ordinance to try and force myself to participate in a ceremony that violates not only God's holy truth, but also strips me of my rights as an American, taxpaying, law-abiding citizen is unreasonable. Dalen had previously declined to discuss the local controversy, citing legal advice. Though the ordinance does provide carve-outs for religious organizations and members-only clubs, businesses that serve the general public, like Heavenly Creations, would be prohibited from refusing business because of a customer's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Dalen's argument gets at the core of a question on which the U.S. Supreme Court has so far declined to rule, whether a business can be compelled by civil rights laws to provide a service that violates the owner's religious or moral beliefs. Museum curator Ryan McHale testified at the council's first meeting on the issue in June. He returned to argue that religion had long justified all kinds of discrimination. Much like their pro-slavery predecessors, Segregationists during the Jim Crow era cited scripture as justification for maintaining racial segregation and inequality. There is little that distinguishes the religion, religious freedom claim of today from those of the segregationists who argue that they should not be forced to hire, serve, or associate with African Americans or Native Americans. Some members of Ketchikan City Council expressed hesitation at the body's July 2nd meeting, but the final vote was unanimous, all seven members in favor. With passage of the ordinance, Ketchikan joins Sitka, Juneau, and Anchorage on the list of cities that bar discrimination against LGBTQ individuals. The ordinance takes effect in mid-August. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. The number of COVID-19 cases in Alaska is soaring. Monday, the state reported another 141 Alaskans and non-residents infected with the disease. It's the highest one-day total yet, and it's the second day in a row that the state reported more than 100 new infections. Two outbreaks among seafood workers are, in part, fueling today's high numbers. Local officials had announced the cases over the weekend. The largest of the two outbreaks is aboard a huge factory fishing vessel called the American Triumph. The vessel was docked in Onalaska and is now headed for Seward. More than two-thirds of its crew have tested positive for the virus. The second cluster of cases is in Juneau at the fish processor Alaska Glacier Seafoods. Also included in today's report are 52 infections among residents from the municipality of Anchorage. It's the highest one-day total for the municipality yet, and follows recent warnings that the city could exceed its ICU bed capacity in as little as 10 weeks. The state reported one new hospitalization today and no new deaths. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. This is 